fall gets the go-ahead. All the professional bat and ball crowd are way down south for spring. Who topped big league baseball in 1941? Paramount News reports the facts in the home stretch drive that's exciting a sporting nation. Early forecasts point to a rip-snorting season with thrills galore. America's role in World War II was suddenly crystallized by the Japanese. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. After Pearl Harbor, America launched itself into World War II, putting the country's collective effort and resources into the struggle. As factories, office buildings, work sites, and schools offered up their men for the draft, baseball fields across the nation saw their players leave for an uncertain future. There's the MLB war heroes, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Hank Greenberg, but for every all-star that went abroad, scores of minor leaguers served on the front lines, carrying baseball with them as they deferred their fight to make the big leagues to fight for their country. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. But I'm not the only one. I'm Harry Swartout, and for the past few months, I've been working on a brand new line of play. That's a recording of Harry Alvin Swartout, my grandfather, in a meeting for the department store W.T. Grant in 1965. He died less than a year later, when my father was just 12, so I never knew him. But I knew two things about him. He fought in World War II, and he played minor league baseball. Every year on Memorial Day, right when the baseball season is getting into full swing, I wonder who was the man behind the catcher's mask. This year, I tried to find out, piecing together who Harry Alvin was through documents at the bottom of a trunk, illuminating his baseball and war experiences. What I discovered was a generation of baseball hopefuls, whose love for the game stayed with them deep into the heart of the war. The story begins with my grandfather as one of thousands of boys who started off the 40s with a bat in their hand instead of a gun. Minor League Baseball before World War II was very popular. That's Jacob Pomricky, the digital content editor for Sabre, the Society of Baseball Research. Generally, you could find a, a minor league team, you know, within about 50 miles of just about any town in America. What you saw was talented amateur players. There'd be teenagers or coming out of high school or college. They would, you know, sign with the local team. This seems to be what Harry Alvin did. He lettered in baseball, football, basketball, soccer, track, and bowling at Bethlehem Central High School in Del Mar, New York. But he finally caught a scout's eye at a summer baseball camp. In 1941, he signed a deal in the summer between his junior and senior year of high school with the London Pirates of the Pennsylvania, Ontario, New York League, or the Pony League for short. Dear Mr. Swartow, as per our conversation in Albany, I am enclosing a contract for London of the Pony League. May I wish you the best of luck and success with your baseball career. Very truly yours, Fred F. Lear, Pirate Scout. The letter is on Pittsburgh Athletic Company letterhead with the old Pirates logo at the top, which actually differs from most contracts at the time. 
Back in those days, there was a lot of independent teams in minor league baseball. Some of them had affiliate agreements with major league teams, and some of them did not. They signed their own players, and they fielded their own rosters without input from the major league organization. Despite the plurality of leagues and no MLB overseeing many of the teams, being a minor leaguer was a pretty good deal for a kid coming out of school. None of them were making a lot of money, $2,000 or $3,000 per year for your salary. And you didn't get paid in the offseason. You only got paid during the season, so uh, you had to go to work. But baseball was still a, a glamorous occupation compared to working you know, in the mines or in a factory. So if you were talented enough to play professional baseball, uh, even at the lowest level of the minor leagues, it was uh, still a pretty fun way to, to spend a summer. A decent way to make a living and a dream come true. My grandfather and his generation would have grown up in a time where baseball was king. You'll find everything in baseball's book. Kids wanted to be just like their idols on the diamond. Before he was old enough to play, my grandfather treasured a photo of the 1934 AL pennant winning Detroit Tigers, keeping it with him at all times when he was a child. The first time he left it behind was as a note. He told his mother he was finally off to emulate his heroes, saying, Dad said I could play ball. Dad said I should start back at 5.30. Kisses. Harry. From then on, Harry Alvin was singularly focused. Just ask his closest living relative. My name is Saul Swartout. And uh, you are my father? Yes, I am, Harry. I am Harry's father. Excellent. And one of the things I found out recently in his yearbook, Harry, his goal when, you know, you have your senior picture and it asks you what your goal is in life, his goal was professional baseball. In his pursuit of playing pro ball, Grandpa would suit up for numerous teams. But from what I can tell, every single player on any of the teams Harry Alvin played for has died. If any of them are still alive, they'd be in their mid-90s. But in the 40s, they were strong young men. Physically, he was a big man. He had massive chest, massive arms. He was just a big physical person with a big physical presence. So it was a person that you knew was in the room. Unfortunately, big, strong, healthy men were exactly what the military was looking for after the war broke out. The military draft uh, took all able-bodied men and a lot of them were uh, young professional athletes in good health. There were more than 250 minor league players who were drafted to the military even before Pearl Harbor. There were some leagues that almost immediately folded. Minor league baseball had, I think, 43 leagues operating in 1941 and by 1943, that dropped to 10. Minor leaguers were more likely to be drafted even than major leaguers. The young player base meant that prospects were less likely to be married, and more likely to have avoided an injury that would have given them a 4F designation and made them ineligible for service. Later, these guidelines were relaxed, and even more players were taken into the armed forces. This put the remaining players in a no-man's land. League shut down. The open ones had spots to fill and not enough players. New jobs fueling the American war machine beckoned. It was hard to know what to do or where to go. Some, like my grandfather, decided to not wait until their name was called and enrolled in the services themselves. So then he graduates in June of 42. In the time period between June of 42 and January of 43, I'm not quite sure what he was doing. I think he was a fireman on the railroad based on record. In January of 43... He enlists in the Marine Corps. He's in the service in February. 
the opening gun of the 43 baseball season at Lakewood, New Jersey. This year's ball club adds up okay in spite of losses to the Army. Hank Greenberg, now U.S. Army private number 36114611, goes to bat in his last big league baseball game for a year at least. I hope I meet you again um, in October. I hope so too. Thanks, man. The war didn't stop baseball, it just moved it. Conscripted MLB big-timers played for military bases or did exhibition tours to boost morale for the front lines. On the island of Oahu, they had not only a military league, but they also, uh, two of the teams, the Pearl Harbor sub-base, submarine base that is, and the 7th Army Air Force played in a civilian league. That's Kit Chrissy former U.S. Naval Reserve and military baseball historian. At the end of 1944, the Navy and the Army squared off in the, in the so-called Service World Series and played several games at different facilities on the island of o Oahu and then went to the big island of Hawaii and I think finally to Kauai to, uh, uh, to finish out the series. The major leaguers were certainly a part of the military, but they didn't often see a lot of action. With a few notable exceptions, they mostly served behind the lines. The number of uh, professional ball players, certainly major league ball players, who actually saw combat was very low, a very low percentage in comparison with all those who uh, were in the military. So very few. The Marines assigned Harry Alvin to the island of Okinawa, in the Pacific. He flew intelligence missions, often drawing detailed maps of the islands he soared over. For minor leaguers and civilians, these spits of land, some not much more than an airstrip surrounded by beach, became the ballparks of the Pacific. The service provided bats, balls, and equipment. The troops provided the game. They would just clear an area. I mean, the, uh, the bigger islands certainly had enough room for a baseball diamond or several. Uh, what the Seabees, the construction battalion people did, was just get a field ready. I imagine by putting sand or dirt over the coral, a base every 90 feet, and that was it. And the Marines and the sailors would watch the game. I have another picture of Johnny Vandermeer pitching in a shirt and dungarees and sneakers or, or spikes, whatever he had, on a field in a place called Gab Gab Beach on Guam. And in the distance, you, could, you can see the ocean. And on some of these fields, long drives wound up in the ocean. <laughs> I have a picture of my grandfather and several other men standing shoulder to shoulder in front of just such a beach, wearing baseball caps. Some were shirtless, others had button-ups, still others t-shirts, but they all had gloves, and in the center, one poor guy was dressed in full catcher's gear in the midday sun. The men are Harry Alvin's Marine baseball teammates. They formed a league. Grandpa played for headquarters. It wasn't as slap shot as you might think. The GIs were on these islands for long periods of time, uh, and they were isolated, and they would form baseball teams, and they had a organized league. They played, I think, one year, I think I remember reading a record where they played 15 or 16 games, somewhere like that. And they, they were serious games from everything, the reviews in the, the military papers that we have. They were serious about playing. 
players kept their own score, stats, and even had their exploits written up right alongside the pro scores from back home in the military news bulletins that were handed out to GIs. There was even a championship. My grandfather kept the engraved metal baseball coin they gave out as a prize next to his dog tags around his neck. It was good for the players, but for the audience, it was a welcome release for the rigors of fighting a war. It served a very good function to provide servicemen's recreation. And, and really, the only recreation was to, uh, say for me as an officer, to go to the officer club and play silly dice games. Or you could just stop the world, so to speak, for a couple of hours and watch a ball game. After those few hours, the world continued to spin and the war went on. In 1945, America won. And by 1946, enlisted men began returning home. For the first time in its history, the United States is preparing thoughtfully and wholeheartedly to provide its returning veterans with opportunity, security, and guidance. But there were those who didn't make it. There were about 125 minor league players, only two major leaguers, people who had a whiff of major league ball died. But, of course, many were injured and could not play after the war. Even more numerously, they found that their skills had been eroded. They had been away from the game for three or four years. And when they came back, their skill level wasn't as good as it had been. Well, you know, baseball is our national pastime. And it's up to the youth of our country to keep that pastime going and at top speed. Giants, 27,000 baseball fans, hail the guy who pitched a shutout against the Bearmouth, a fellow who once played semi-pro ball himself. The poise and balance, the keen sense of timing of the trained athlete often were the difference between living and dying. Now as our boys return, let's peek ahead into the second golden era of sports. Some men just decided, all right, I had a fling with professional baseball, and now uh, I'm, I'm going to give that up uh, and uh, just get a degree, get a college degree, and go in another field, or even not get a college degree, but do something else. And I think one thing that uh, motivated the change was those men who had gotten married and were beginning to start families. When Harry Alvin returned from the war in 1946, he had a choice to make. Go to school on the GI Bill, or wait until spring to return to the now relocated Hornell Pirates of the Pony League. He chose the former. In a year, he was married. In two, he had a child. He graduated in 1949. Others tried to get back into the game, but found they had brought back more from the war than they had thought. Phil Marchilden, who was in the Canadian Air Force, was shot down over Kiel, Germany, and spent time in a prisoner of war camp. And after the war, his mental toughness had been affected. He had trouble concentrating. People told me that he looked great before the game, but once the game began, he had his problems. You might have come back with your body intact, but your mind might have been affected. Regardless, the minors expanded for a while with the glut of returning players. But this clogged up the path to the majors. An embarrassment of riches, it was not. 
Jimmy Dyke said, uh, he was manager of the White Sox, he said, in spring training in 1946, I could have started a league of my own. I had so many people. What Major League Baseball did was, uh, for that year, expand rosters from 25 to 30 people. But there was also a legal problem. A few players brought suit against Major League Baseball because during the war, uh, the GI Bill had been passed and people were told they had a, a, an honest chance to get their job back. And some players felt that they had been given a brief trial during spring training and then uh, uh, sent to the minor leagues. So the spring of 1946 was a very unhappy time for many um, players. Minor leaguers that carried baseball to the front lines kept it with them in peacetime as well. Soon, television would make viewing major league games possible anywhere in the country, even as it helped collapse many of the minor leagues. MLB products, from baseball cards to jerseys and even hit records, helped keep baseball at the fore of American sport in the 50s. Harry Alvin continued to spread his love for the game, passing it on to his children and countless others. Stan, once you've taken your position in the batter's box, do you move around? Once I've taken my position, I try to anchor that back foot. He was a sports buyer for the W.T. Grant Company. I remember him bringing home these small little, I think there were 45 records of like Stan Musial, teaching you how to swing and how to stand and how to catch. And when he would bring them home, we'd listen to them. And I can remember with the wiffle ball bat in the living room, and my mom wasn't too happy about this, but we would practice our stance and our swings. I can remember being so small that the wiffle ball bat was bigger than I was. And we'd go to baseball games. We went to Yankee Stadium, and when Shea Stadium opened up, and the Mets were playing, and the Houston Astros at the time were new too, he taught us all how to play. It's hard to tell how baseball would have continued if World War II hadn't happened. TVs may have stamped out much of minor league ball before the 60s. Japan might not be as deeply dedicated to the game without U.S. occupation after the war. But there's no doubt, baseball would have continued strong. The same people who put down their gloves to take up arms, the same people who played ball when they weren't launching shells, kept America's pastime close to heart during the war, like a dog tag on a chain around their necks. I think one of the big regrets, perhaps, of his sports career was that after the war, he had to stop playing baseball, organized baseball, with the goal of becoming a major league player. That was his goal from a very early point in life. I think he always regretted that. But I think as an individual, and probably representative of many individuals, he went through his senior year in high school. They had no concept of having to go to war. And so when they did, they were extremely proud of the time they spent and what they did, and also how much they really enjoyed and were engrossed in sports. These men had their whole life and their futures changed. They did what was needed from a country standpoint, but they never gave up 
their love for their game, and they played it through the most trying conditions, and I think that speaks a lot. Well, men, that's our story for 1966. Special thanks for this week's episode goes out to Jacob Pomranke and Saber, Kit Chrissy, Saul Swartout, Ben Eagle, and John Thorne. If you'd like to see any of the documents mentioned in this episode and learn more about them, head over to si.com slash minor players. That's si.com slash M-I-N-O-R-P-L-A-Y-E-R-S. If you like the episode, write us a review on iTunes or tell a friend. Those are the best two ways to spread the word about the narrative. Tweet about us using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. For more on military baseball and all narratives moving the world of sport, log on to SI.com. Hey.